Welcome to The Reading Room. This is Room 24. On this programme, we talk to crime author Ellie Griffiths. One of the wonderful things about writing a series is that you do get that space to expand and develop the characters a bit more. We have a short story from John Baird. Sir, we provide cover. Victor taps a gun on the desk. Meet my insurance policy. And find out what happened when I visited a writer's circle. I've been to a few meetings over the years where the feedback was too much. It was too negative. This is Brendan Cleary. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3. And I'm very pleased to say we've been joined by Ellie Griffiths, whose new book, A Room Full of Bones, has just been published. And it's the fourth to feature the Head of Forensic Archaeology at the University of North Norfolk, Ruth Galloway. So, for the uninitiated, could you uh, give us a bit about Ruth, please? Well, Ruth is a forensic archaeologist, so her speciality really is, is kind of digging and, and bones and, and looking at the way things are buried and she lives on her own in a, in a house with her cat and she's quite happy really um, but she's drawn into um, a murder when she meets um, DCI Harry Nelson who's the head of the North Norfolk Police. He calls her in when bones are discovered on the marshland um, and those bones turn out to be over 2,000 years old but Ruth's drawn into a much more modern case, that of an abducted child, and she's also drawn into a very uh, complicated relationship with DCI Harry Nelson. I see, I see. So he's the main main character he that is, th- yeah. runs runs through the thread. And and, and this this being uh, your fourth book, I mean, it's obviously a well established character now. I know you feel like you know her really well, I assume. I do, yes. And it's funny because I really don't know where she comes from. And I used to hate that before I wrote a book, you know, when you asked authors and they said, oh, I don't know, they just appeared. But Ruth really did just appear in my life. And I'm not quite sure who she's like or who she is, but I do feel like I know her really well. And that um, one of the wonderful things about writing a series is that you do get that space, you know, to expand and, and develop the characters a bit more and their relationships, which, as I say, are getting even more complicated. Okay, well, well, as that gets more complicated, you feel more of a, 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 a at ease writing the character. But then, I suppose, do you spend now more time on the on the plot? Yes, maybe. I mean, I think the thing is, as you go through the series, there is a bit of a pressure not to make them all the same. And so, one of the things I think that happens is because you you can't. I just can't have Ruth in jeopardy in every book. You know, she's had her she had a share of uh, being chased and attacked and all that sort of thing. So, I think you do then expand the the smaller characters a bit. So, you know. You've got the characters on Nelson's police team, uh, Clough and Judy, who've kind of expanded. And also Ruth has a friend who's a druid called Cathbad, who was really intended to be quite a minor character. And now he really has become quite a major character. So I think that's one of the things that happens. And that's one of the quite nice things as you go through the series. Would you also say that a major character in the book is Norfolk itself, the setting? Oh, definitely. And in fact, for me, the landscape came first. And um, really the whole idea for the books came when I was crossing Titchwell Marsh with my husband who's an archaeologist and he happened to say to me that prehistoric man saw marshland as sacred because it's neither land nor sea they saw it as a kind of in-between place between life and death if you like so it was a kind of bridge to the afterlife and that's why they buried bodies sometimes on in, in marshland and, and weapons and treasure to mark that boundary and really you know that the whole plot of the crossing places came to me then so it started with that landscape that in-between place I see. And your husband's an archaeologist, isn't he? So, I mean, do you ever do you ever escape from this at all? I mean, you know, do you ever talk about the TV or? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Only to watch Time Team, unfortunately. No, <laughs> no. Um, we don't talk about archaeology a lot because obviously he's an expert and I'm not. And I think the way that I write about it is probably a little bit too 
sensational for him, really. Of course, I think one of the big differences is a real-life dig takes years and years. And um, in a book, it can't. So I think that you know, sometimes he just thinks, oh, they wouldn't find it that quickly. So uh, look, looking back, I mean, when you started and in, in the crossing places, then did you have the foresight to look ahead and say, this is going to be a series? Or did it just develop that way? No, I didn't think it was going to be a series. And, and the funny thing is I had published before un- under my own name, uh, which is Domenica de Rosa, which I know sounds like a pseudonym, but it is my own name. Um, so I had published before and I actually thought that the crossing places was another one of those sort of standards standalone books I mean sort of literary fiction women's fiction I don't know how to describe them really and it had similar themes about the past and everything but it wasn't until I'd finished it and my agent said to me oh this is crime so you need a new name and a new publisher and it's a new genre so I didn't even realise then that it was crime, much less that it would be a series. So with the series, do you ever feel, uh, this, maybe at this point, because uh, I know, I know there's, there's, there's more coming, do you ever feel sort of restricted or you'd like to go off on a tangent or you get a new idea? Well, I think the thing about writing about archaeology is, is that you are quite free, really, because you can just roam across the centuries, you know, or the millennia, you know. So there is so much to choose from. I haven't felt restricted yet. But having said that, there, there is, I've just finished writing the fifth book and there'll be at least six. So there will be a few more, but I have got other ideas as well. So I do want to write other stuff, you know, and I still want to write stuff, you know, under my real name as well. So I hope I'll find time to do that. I see. Now, in, in some of the um, previous interviews and certainly the email, some of the emails we got uh, sent regarding you, uh, the words TV came up alongside <laughs> this. And this has got TV written written all over it, really. Oh, well, <laughs> I'd love to see them on TV. Of course I would. Um, and the BBC have shown some interest, but there's a long way between, you know, the interest they've shown and actually getting getting on, on screen. But, yeah, I, I, I think, of course, I could be a bit biased, but I think they'd be really good on, on telly, you know. Um, and in the process of that, would you like to do the screenwriting... No, I don't think I wouldn't like to because it's such a different thing. You know, maybe at some point I might learn how to do it, but I think it's such a skill. No. And also in a way, it's it's a different medium, isn't it? And I think you do need a different skill. And I'd maybe like to have a bit of distance. Um, I, you know, I have to put a bit of name dropping in here. And I was talking to Ian Rankin once. He said that he'd never seen any of the Rebus on television. Really? Because he didn't want to end up writing for that actor. Yeah. So I think it is quite good maybe to keep a bit of distance from, from the... But of course, I'd love to see it on telly. You know, I've got ideas who'd be a good Ruth. And who, who do you think? Who would be your ideal Ruth? Do you think Ruth Jones would be good? I, I think she, she looks very good for Ruth. A bit slim now, I'm afraid, but um, I'm sure she could do something about that. But yeah. um, <laughs> get, get her on the case. Yeah, yeah. yeah, she could. But she's such an intelligent actress. I think she'd be really, you know, she, she'd have you believing that she was, you know, an archaeologist and an expert. So I think she'd be great. But I mean, I think there probably are quite a few actresses who could do it. I mean, can you still get lost in a good book? As an author now, can you still get lost in a good book? I mean, do you, do you steer away from crime when you come to read for, for pleasure? Um, I don't read loads of crime, I have to say. Um, I do really love Victorian literature. So Wilkie Collins is my favourite author and it's a kind of treat for me to read them quite regularly, reread them, The Woman in White. And my favourite's No Name, actually, which isn't read as much, I don't think, The Moonstone. Um, I love C.J. Sampson. I love his, you know, the, the Tudor detective stuff with, with Matthew Shardlake. I love those. I like David Lodge, Kate Atkinson. In fact, at the moment, though, my daughter, who's 13, has just discovered Georgia Hare. And I'm reading Georgia Hare, and they're wonderful. Talk about losing yourself in a book, you know, those dashing heroes. You touched on earlier that you've been published previously, but also you have a bit of a background in publishing. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I um, after university, I, I went to work in publishing, and I worked for HarperCollins. I worked in children's publishing. 
and I was um, eventually editorial director at HarperCollins for children's literature. So I did see publishing from the other side, but it's very different. It's very different when you're an author. I'm not sure that it helped that much. No, no, because I mean, there you're chasing my, my next question. You know, is, did that give you an insight to, as to what might be, what, I don't know, it, it must be difficult to think, well, you, you'd never write a book to say, I want to sell a million, I want to sell a million, because you've got to write really for the art's sake, yeah. surely. I think that was the thing. Funnily enough, I do think that reading English at university and then um, working in publishing put me off for years, put me off writing because um, especially working for a big company, books are just about money. And really, that's the only reason anyone ever publishes a book is to make money. People talk about adding to the sum of human knowledge. I suppose academic publishers might be a bit different. But, you know, trade publishers, that's why they're published to make money. And being in that environment, though actually I loved it as a workplace, did put me off writing. And it wasn't till actually I was on maternity leave expecting my, my twins 14 years ago that I wrote my first book. So I think I think that environment did slightly put me off. And I think that's one of the lovely things about the Ellie Griffiths books is they're published by Quirkus, who are quite a small publisher. So it is a very different feeling. And it do, you do feel that people like the books for themselves and not just for the units that they... Yeah, yeah, certainly. I mean, something else we, we, we touch on quite a lot here, and it's something I'm always intrigued in, is the editing process. I mean, do you have any, uh, any, any battles over, over what's, what's being kept in? Do you get precious about what you, what you put in? No, I'm not precious, and I think that helps having been an editor, because I realise how much I need one, and I think that you, you just can't edit yourself. And I, can, I think I can appreciate how good my editor is. Um, Jane Wood is quite a, you know, she's, she's a very well-known editor, and one of the reasons I wanted to go to Quirkus was to work with her, and she's, she's fantastic. She always knows one of my things is writing too quickly and towards the end of the book I'm really rushing and Jane knows the bits that need to be expanded and she's also trying to cure me of adverbs she hasn't she hasn't quite um, succeeded yet. She says that you shouldn't say he said crossly, she said nervously, that the dialogue should give you that. I do have occasionally sneak in an adverb, sneak an adverb past her. I always like to ask about publishing, and certainly e-books that have come into us now. And you've brought along today your book, and it looks looks beautiful in a hardback book. Yeah. And uh, I mean, surely e-books aren't going to aren't going to replace. No, I don't think so. I hope not. Anyhow, obviously they have their place. But one of the things that I wonder is whether books will become more beautiful and they become more of an artifact. And one of the things that's always you know intrigued me is the fact that nowadays, as opposed to in you know. Victorian days uh, adult books aren't illustrated are they and they're not so beautiful whereas if you think about Dickens those illustrations are very much part of the book so I wonder if we might even go back to seeing you know illustrated books and that being quite a big thing imagine the new Martin Amis comes out illustrated by Damien Hurst or something you know that could be a real selling point so I wonder if did you see the um lovely edition they did of, of the woman in black Susan Hill's woman in black for Christmas and it was just a beautiful little book like a little prayer book uh, with a, with um, one of those bookmarks and just beautiful thing. And I wonder if, if publishers will go to just making books more beautiful. You say you're currently uh, finishing book five. Does it seem peculiar almost to be promoting sort of a previous book? Do you want to be shouting from the rooftops about what you're, you're writing now? It is it is a strange thing because your head is full of the other one. But it's OK. You know, it's, it's quite nice to be reminded of this one. And you have to just check yourself that you don't say, of course, in book five, you know, your publishers want you to make people excited about them a book at a time, really, you know, and not sort of jump ahead. But... Mm. It is the strange thing. I think well, maybe that's another thing that might change about publishing. Books might come out a bit quicker. I don't know. but Perhaps so. And you're calling it Book 5 for now. Is there a title? Yeah. The moment it's called The Tomb of the Raven King. 
Wow. And in that, Tuttle's getting longer, aren't they? But <laughs> um, in that one, Ruth goes up. She actually leaves Norfolk. She goes up to, Lin- uh, to Lancashire because a colleague of hers has found a tomb which she thinks might be the tomb of King Arthur. And she goes up there to investigate. And, of course, then she's in Nelson's territory. And Nelson's on holiday in Blackpool with his family. So you get a bit more of his background. And it's also in- enabled me to find out quite a lot about the Pendle Witches, which has been fascinating. Great stuff. Thank you very much for joining us, Daly. Thank you very much. Uh, A Room Full of Bones is available now from Quirkus Books. The Reading Rooms, 101 books to read before you die. Hello, this is Nikki Valentine, author of The Haunted, and the book that I'd recommend is Dark Matter by Michelle Paver. It's a very cold, lonely ghost story. It's about explorers camping out, and in the end, for various circumstances, one of them gets stuck on their own, and there's something very dark lurking in the ice. Our thanks to Nikki Valentine for her entry into the 101 books to read before you die list. And if you'd like to add your name to the list, please get in contact readingroom at sirenonline.co.uk. Now it's time for a short story from Nottingham-based crime thriller writer John Baird. This is The Safe Option, read by John Fernandez. It's the hottest Friday on record, and they're driving to the insurance brokers. You know what to do in there, says Abby. Ask for the manager, nods Victor, his mind busy with a dancer-slash-glamour model named Titka. She gets her great looks from her mother, who, it turns out, is a cosmetic surgeon. Victor can't imagine Abby going for a little nip and tuck, more like a nip to the tuck shop. He cranks up the aircon. He can't believe anyone could find Abby attractive, despite the Facebook rumour that she'd been seeing a guy with a limp. They enter the retail park. If the place is busy, just wait. Abby yanks up the handbrake. You do have your insurance policy. Of course. Victor grabs a blanket off the back seat, lobs it over a shoulder, and adjusts his Soviet army summer hat. You look perfect, smiles Abby. Every bit the mad, dangerous Russian. Aren't you glad people judge you? I abhor all stereotyping. Victor drops open the glove box and necks a gob full of vodka. He squints at the brokers. In the window is a cardboard character with a huge baseball bat, used, apparently, to beat quotes. Once inside, Victor is met by a man and a woman, both flashing practice smiles at him. He blanks the redhead and slides up to the desk with the man behind it. The tag reads, Kevin Spleen, manager, bingo. He's about ten years Victor's junior and has an enviable shock of muddy blonde hair. A cocked palm invites Victor to sit. How can I help? Kevin's features are lopsided, reminding Victor of Lembit Opic. You can give me the safe. Kevin frowns. Excuse me? The safe. I want it. The safe? Do you see a Monopoly board? No, sir. Connect four? A shake of the head. But you think I'm playing games? Kevin releases a nervous laugh. Sir, we provide cover. Victor taps a gun on the desk. Meet my insurance policy. Now, the safe. With all pretense of calm forsaken, Kevin bends to unlock a cabinet. Cops better not be hearing anything about this. Victor turns to the wide-eyed assistant. 
You're hearing me, sweet cheeks. She nods as the safe appears. Victor wraps the blanket, and then his arms, around the heavy safe. Drenched in sweat, he staggers off. By the time they drive away, he's panting like a dog on a bus. Abby has one eye on the speedometer, the other on the rearview mirror. Once we crack this baby, we'll be counting money like Jim Bowen on Bullseye. She swings into the drive of the tired semi. A car screeches up behind them, blue light flashing. Cops! She yells. Do one! How the... Forced to flee, Victor stuffs the gun under his belt and throws himself at a hedge. He expects to hear, stop, police! But the only sound is a dog barking, a sound that fades as he hurdles a fence. Five blocks later, Victor is expecting more cops. Having carted off Abby, they'll be looking for him. With this in mind, he wipes clean the gun, ditches it in an old well and makes plans to leave town. He turns the corner into the path of a police officer. The cop is looking for a man matching Victor's description. Within moments, he's in cuffs. A half hour later, Victor's in a police lineup, standing there amid two young crackheads, an old tramp and a policewoman. He pitches Kevin and that ginger girl, the other side of the one-way glass, laughing at him. An interview follows, in which Victor invokes his right to keep stum. We searched your house, says a square-headed cop sporting his corner parting. We found the safe. The cop strokes his chin. How'd you open it? Equally curious, Victor sits up. Okay, I'll try another question. Where's the money? Victor's expression wavers to confusion. You get the flashing light off eBay? What are you on about? The blue light, the one you left inside the safe. Reality bites. That flashing light wasn't on an undercover cop car, deduces Victor. No more than its driver, hiding under a cap and shades, had been a cop. He'd been set up. They'd taken the cash. Victor's court date arrives. He had tried to cut a deal by ratting out his wife, but no joy. It had been her idea to do over the brokers, he told them. She'd heard the safe was stacked on Fridays. Insufficient evidence, they said. She never appeared on CCTV. She never hurled the gun, and her prints weren't on the safe. Still, Victor pleads not guilty, citing entrapment. He looks on at the witness box as the ginger assistant points at him and blurts out how he threatened her. The thin-faced lawyer shakes his head. And what of your manager, Mr Kevin Spleen? I don't think he could cope with the shock of it, recalls the woman. I mean, neither of us had been working there for more than a few weeks when, more pointing at Victor, he walks in. The lawyer scans the jury. And Mr Spleen has yet to return to work. She nods. Kevin's not been back since that day. In fact, he was so shook up that he had to leave within a minute of the robbery. The last I saw of him, he was limping off to his car.
Disagreement over white. She says the lie she told is white. He says it will curl like a snake around her feet, growl as a fierce dog, prowl like a stalker in the shadows. But she says it will do no harm. It is white, almost invisible. He says, "Watch out! A seed will grow. A butterfly can cause a tidal wave." A knot is hard to undo, she says. It's like sky, from a distance it seems blue. Up close, there's nothing to see. He says, in that case, the lie's not white at all. Our thanks there to Adrienne Silcock with her poem "Disagreement Over White." Now, as you're aware, we're going to take to the stage on the twelfth of May with a reading room live, and.、Uh, One of the people taking part in the reading room live is me. So to get myself in shape、uh, with regards to writing something for the event, I decided to visit the Lincoln Phoenix Writers Circle. So it's Friday night, and I'm on my way to a writers' group. It's been a long week.、Uh, I think I'd rather be sat down at home with a, a glass of something fruity、uh, right now.、Uh, but I'm on my way、uh, to the Phoenix Writers' Circle. Now I've done the odd open mic thing before. I'm almost thinking that the the open mic experience might be a bit more positive than this because here I'm I'm bringing some work. I'm bringing a poem、uh, that I've written called After Show. To be critiqued, and people tell me what they think. I think generally, if you go to a、uh, an open mic night, that you generally get a nice, generous round of applause at the end. Generally, and、uh, occasionally, someone will come up and say that they really liked it. Anyone who didn't like it just, you know, talks about you behind your back or laughs about you、uh, into their pint. But coming here and, and asking people to tell me what they think might be wrong with your work,、um, well, that's something else entirely. So here goes. Normally stand, or do you sit? What do you do around here? Some stand, some sit. Okay, I've got some defence here. I'm going to sit. Okay, this is called after show. Don't talk to me straight away. I have nothing to say. I need to reflect. I've given my all. I need to recoup and to power up. This period is safe for my irrational thoughts. Not a time for interviews or meets and greets. See me in an hour or so when I've filed my thoughts, put some in the pending tray. Put some in the shredder. Then you can buy me a drink and ask me anything you like. I'll sign anything you like. I'll pose any way you like. You'll get a good quote, something to tell your friends next time you see me on the telly. Space is all I ask. I'm not being rude. I'm not being snotty. Yes, you're right. What I do doesn't look very tiring, but it is. Yes, you're right. I'm not chopping heads off chickens in a factory for a twelve-hour shift. I'm not complaining. Yes, I am very lucky to be doing this. Well, no, scrap that last bit. I worked my ass off getting where I am today. <laughs> the end. That was a poem. A bit over, all over the place, really. I think that it's somewhere in that crossover point, and I love the content. But I do think that if you want it to be a, a poem. You need to tighten the language up and maybe lose a little bit of it. Just be much more precise with the language. When the person's saying "you're right," they're obviously talking to themselves. It's a, it's a conversation they're having in, in their own mind, as opposed to with anybody. I, I yeah. found myself putting a <clears throat> face to it. I, I was picturing someone, for the, certainly for the last bit, picturing someone outside a stage door. You know, where someone's saying, "You know, I've queued up 
mm. eight hours to see you and all mm. these kind of things. I really liked it. It did build a good picture in my mind, and I've never really thought about it like that before. How do you see? You might get a different view if you saw it, if, if, rather than hearing it, if you actually read it. It is a talking head thing, isn't it? That's, that's yeah. true. I do. I think I do write for the spoken word. I start. I write for performance. But I think I'd like to get things tighter, like you, like you were saying. I, I think I'm not always very keen on having to the, the rhyming and scanning thing. Is it is it is a thing for me? Just because if I choose the words, they're the words I want. And I, I don't know. I got a good lot of feeling from it, and I thought that's what poetry was all about. Uh, so I'm outside now from the Phoenix Writers Circle, end of the night now with uh, Keith Blakesley. So uh, this was my first night, Keith. Now, you've been a member of this group for, for quite some time now, haven't you? So can you can you recall back to the first time you, you came and, and, and set foot or read something out? Very daunting experience to be sat there with all these people staring at me. It was a, a strange experience. And then to get the feedback afterwards, it was... Uh, can you remember the feedback? Can you remember what they said? It was, it was very positive in the fact that um, you're new here, so we're not going to be super critical. And the person that was doing the feedback did it with a military precision. And so, you know, the, the, the feedback could come over as being quite severe. Uh, in fact, I've been to a few meetings over the years where the feedback, in my opinion, was too much, was too, too angry or, you know, it, 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 it was too negative. One meeting we had very recently, Richard absolutely slated one of the newer members. And she'd only been here the first night, and I thought that really is out of order. You know, you don't go treating the third person on the first night with that. And it, I was getting quite incensed about it, and a few other people were too, until we realised that what she'd read out was one of his own pieces, and it was all a stage play, it was an act. Really? And it was done with such professionalism that we were all fell for it. And looking at that feedback, how comfortable do you feel giving feedback to, to, to someone? It is difficult because, first of all, in, in some ways to give feedback about something it implies that you must know something about the technical side of what you're saying. On the other hand, if you like a story or poem uh, or, or, or something just doesn't gel right, then you need to say it and mention it. Yeah. Because that might be what people are after. It can become a bit boring because if people are saying, oh yeah, that's nice, that's nice, that's nice, you know, because it, that's not necessarily constructive. But you'd, I mean, you'd recommend the experience when you'd recommend uh, to, you know, to someone who's wanting to improve their writing. Oh yeah, definitely, absolutely. Because only, only with getting feedback from other people and other like-minded readers will you be able to take your material forward and learn from it. Uh, so back in the car after my mock-up uh, first uh, visit to a writer's group. I read and I read first. They, they made me read first, uh, which I thought was quite cruel. But I, I read it and uh, I, I got, uh, I think, fair feedback. Maybe the fact that the microphone was on, uh, maybe no one challenged too hard. I certainly went in there kind of up for an argument to, uh, to defend my cause. And, um, and I was very well received, really. Tonight has really helped me in in sort of moving forward and saying, look, you know, th actually, this is this is what I do. I write for for performance. But overall, uh, a thoroughly enjoyable e experience. Uh, but I am relieved. I, you know, now it's over. I'm relieved. I do feel I can I can relax. So um, I'm I'm very relieved uh, and very pleased that it was well received. Our thanks there to the Lincoln Phoenix Writers Circle for their time and of course their valuable advice too. And if you'd like to find out more about that writer's circle, follow the links from readingroom.podbean.com. Now The Reading Room presents Jamie Mackay's Musings of a Muddled Mind. So, after spending the entire afternoon in Blockbusters, you finally decide which DVD to watch. 
Your entire weekend depends on this film lifting you from the beige of suburbia to the dizzy heights of Technicolor, Dolby Surround, 3D HD, Blu-ray, Stingray stuff. You put it in the DVD player. Then following several bouts of frantic whirling, you take it out the DVD player as it fails to play. For some reason, whoever borrows films the week before I do coats his hands in strawberry jam, plays frisbee with the disc, and then uses it as a plate for his dog before giving it back to the shop. So after polishing the disc with a variety of cloths, towels and the cat, you do the breathe on it bit for no obvious reason other than it's what your dad would probably have done, and try one more time. Hooray, the magic box is working! You do the magic boxes working dance around the living room with your cat, unless you have a cat like mine that refuses to dance. He categorically refuses to parte, but that's another story. Then you watch the trailers. This is where your weekend starts to unravel. What appears on screen are three trailers for the most amazing films ever made, starring every actor you've loved ever, even dead ones, directed by God with a soundtrack by the Beatles. They look so amazing you would sell your ground for the chance to watch one of them tonight. But you don't. You watch Isn't She Quirky and Isn't He Funny 3 for two and a half hours. Then when you can finally lift your depression off the sofa at yet another failed weekend, you take the disc back to Blockbusters. But can you remember the names of the films from heaven? Of course not. So you potter about for another decade and hire Isn't She Quirky 4 instead. Thanks for listening to The Reading Room. On our next programme, we'll be telling you what we got up to on World Book Night. And The Reading Room book group will be reviewing Driving Jarvis Ham by Jim Bob. See you then.